Hey guys, I'm Ray Belli, and this is Words for Granted, a podcast that looks at how words change over time. If you love the show, you can become a contributor at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted. For just a buck a month, which is less than what we all pay for bad cups of coffee, you'll gain access to contributors-only bonus episodes. If you contribute a little bit more, I'll even send you your own Words for Granted mug. In the next Patreon episode, which should be posted in approximately a week, if all goes to plan, I'll be looking at political words that first emerged in America, such as Congress, Senate, and President, among others. If Patreon's not your thing, but you'd still like to help keep the show on the road, you can make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash wordsforgranted. Thanks to Claudia and Laura for their recent contributions. And with that, let's get on to today's show. Part 4 in a series on American English. In the last episode in this series, we looked at the emergence of the American lexicon, which is to say that we looked at a handful of notable words that first gained currency in America. Initially, there was a British backlash against these Americanisms, but nowadays very few people are having conniptions over words like belittle, to notice, or lengthy. Over time, the backlash against these and other examples of quote-unquote barbarous English has diminished, and they've since been warmly accepted into the language as just English. Today, there are still some differences between the American and British lexicons, but the statistical quantity of these differences is less than 1% according to most estimates. If you were to ask an average person off the street what the greatest difference between American and British English is, they probably wouldn't say the word for this or the word for that, they'd probably say accent, and I would agree. Just listen to an American person like me speak, and then listen to a British person speak, and you'll very quickly realize that we don't sound the same. There are many differences between the standard American accent and the standard British accent, but one of the main differences is roticity. The term roticity refers to the pronunciation of rhotic consonants, that is, the variety of sounds associated with the letter R. Rhotic consonants are among the most complex and elusive consonants produced in languages around the world because, unlike other classes of consonants, they don't universally share a common manner of articulation or place of articulation, thus making the classification of rhotic consonants tenuous at best. Rhotic consonants can be trilled or rolled, as in rrr, tapped or flapped, as in r, guttural, as in the R sound in French and German that I can't really produce, or alveolar, as in the standard American rrr. These are all very different sounds, yet somehow, in languages around the world, they all converge around the letter R, or in non-Roman alphabetic systems, around letters related to R. Alveolar, by the way, is the technical linguistic term that describes the consonantal sound created when the tip of the tongue articulates a sound in the upper gum region, also known as the alveolar ridge. You might not have realized it, but that is how the r sound is produced. This r sound is the main rhotic consonant found in both Standard American English and Standard British English accents, but in British English, the written letter r doesn't always correspond to the pronunciation of a rhotic sound in speech. Linguists classify Standard British English, 
also known as received pronunciation, by the way, as non-rhotic, because the pronunciation of the rhotic consonant is dropped when the letter R comes after a vowel and is not immediately followed by another vowel. So, according to received pronunciation, C-A-R is pronounced something like ka, because the R comes after an A, and that R isn't followed by another vowel. Similarly, P-A-R-K would be pronounced something like pock. I've used the qualifier something like in recognition of the fact that I'm terrible at doing British accents in spite of how much I love analyzing and discussing them. On the contrary, linguists classify the standard American accent as rhotic because the letter R corresponds to the pronunciation of a rhotic consonant regardless of where the letter R appears in a word. Originally, I wanted to do an overview of the entire standard American accent, but very soon after beginning my research, I realized that it would take me like five whole episodes to do that, so instead, I decided to focus on this one aspect of the American English accent in very granular detail. If there's another feature of the American English accent that you'd like me to dedicate a whole episode to, um, shoot me an email at wordsforgranted at gmail.com and I will consider it. With that said, I still think it's a good idea to generally define accent up front to give some broad context to the topic of American roticity that we're about to discuss. In linguistics, the term accent has two related but distinct definitions. In the branch of linguistics called sociolinguistics, accent refers to the overall manner in which words are pronounced by a group of people. These groups might be defined by ethnicity, social class, economic class, or region. Now, even though dialects are often spoken in non-standard sociolinguistic accents, dialects and accents are not the same thing. In the most general terms, a dialect refers to a language variety that has unconventional grammar, syntax, and vocabulary, while accent refers to the characteristic sounds with which a particular group of people speaks a language. If you want to learn more about dialects, you can check out episode 65, Dialect versus Language, if you haven't already. In the branch of linguistics called phonology, the word accent refers to words, syllables, or phrases that are given emphasis in speech. Here, accent is created by a wide variety of factors such as stressed and unstressed components, vowel length, articulation, and pitch. The phonological and sociolinguistic senses of accent are closely related, like I said. In fact, they're virtually the same thing, but studied from different perspectives. In phonology, Accent is the study of speech sounds at a microscopic level, and in sociolinguistics, accent is the study of those speech sounds at the level of social groups and how those speech sounds create and impact social groups' identities. Okay, so uh, with that lightning round of prerequisite information, let's dive into the origins and evolution of American roticity. When British immigrants began coming to America en masse during the early 17th century, they brought with them the English language of their day. That language included contemporary words and a contemporary accent. As we saw in the previous episode, many of these contemporary words eventually died out in Britain, but were preserved in America. A similar phenomenon happened with the contemporary British accent. 
During the early 17th century, which again is when the vast majority of British immigrants came to America, most dialects of British English fully pronounced the letter R regardless of where it appeared in a word. When British immigrants arrived in America, they continued speaking in the full erotic accent just like they had at home, and today, the roticity of standard American English is its direct living descendant. It's likely that erotic accent among American English speakers was more universal per capita during the colonial period than it even is today, and that's because the non-standard, non-rotic American accents hadn't yet evolved. As it turns out, the non-rotic accents found in regions such as New York City, Boston, and Rhode Island, among others, only date back to the 18th century, and surprise, surprise, these accents actually came from Britain. But wait, didn't we just say that the standard British accent used to be rotic? Well, yes, but between the first wave of British immigration to America and the post-revolutionary period, British accents, particularly the aristocratic British accent spoken in London, had drastically begun to change. In less than two centuries, the accent of London, the most important city in England, had become thoroughly non-rotic. Before we look at how this innovative British pronunciation wound up impacting America, I think we should investigate how roticity began to disappear in the standard British accent, or received pronunciation. The earliest instances of non-roticity in British English seem to have occurred in as early as the 15th century. We know this because the written record preserves occasional R-less spellings of words that usually were written with an R. Before the standardization of English spelling, people spelled things phonetically. So if a word appears in the historical written record without a particular consonant or vowel or whatever, it's likely that that's how the writer of that word would have pronounced it. In a handful of private documents from this period, the letter R occasionally starts to disappear in words where it ordinarily would have preceded the letter S. Two examples of this that have actually passed down to us in modern English are the conversions of bars to bass, as in the fish, and arse to ass, as in your buttocks. In the 16th century, we also have evidence of mourning, spelled M-O-N-Y-N-G, mourning, and cardinal, spelled C-A-D-E-N-A-L-L, cardinal. Though, unlike bass and ass, these spelling changes haven't stood the test of time. Now, don't get the idea that R-less spellings were popping up left and right all over Britain. Like I mentioned, these idiosyncratic spellings appear mostly in private documents, and mainly in the South. By the mid-17th century, the first significant traces of non-rotic accents began to emerge. Although we don't have audio recordings to prove it, we can be certain that many English speakers in southern England were beginning to change the way they spoke because a. Arliss spellings start showing up in the written record in various kinds of documents, and b. grammarians and other language commentators start talking about it in their writings. By the late 17th century, this pronunciation trend seems to have reached the heart of London and even infiltrated the speech of the educated class. By the early 18th century, the accent of much of southern England had become non-rotic, and because of the cultural and political significance of London, this Arliss pronunciation suddenly became a feature of the nation's prestige dialect. 
This particular accent became the basis of received pronunciation, whose stature of prestige still persists to this day. Separated by about 4,000 miles of ocean, English speakers in America were largely isolated from this change in pronunciation. People acquire accents by hearing them spoken in everyday life, and in an era before mass communication, this dialect that was overtaking southern England wasn't reaching the ears of Americans in real time. But it did reach the ears of some Americans. After the War for Independence, America still maintained trade relations with the British, and this trade took place in major port cities along the East Coast. Consequently, American traders began emulating this new British accent, probably because they thought it would give them prestige in their profession. Furthermore, wealthy Americans who maintained ties with the British aristocracy often sent their children back to England for education, and when these children returned home, they also brought back with them the British aristocracy's contemporary non-rhotic accent. Most of these wealthy Americans lived in cities, but in the South, a significant number of them were plantation owners. The historical significance of non-rhotic accents around plantations is a point that we'll return to later on. Initially, Americans thought this accent sounded odd, because remember, it was a new accent that had only boomed within the last few decades but it quickly caught on among young Americans, particularly those who wanted to distinguish themselves as upper class. Of course, most people don't want to be viewed as lower class, so even poorer Americans living in urban centers on the East Coast began assimilating this accent to publicly disguise their class. While linguists generally agree that non-rhotic American accents were acquired from the British after the War for Independence, it's worth noting that rogue traces of arlessness do in fact appear in the written record of colonial America. For example, cuss, bust, passel, and hoss all appear as alternatives for curse, burst, parcel, and horse, respectively. Like the few early cases of arlessness in Britain, these idiosyncratic variations appear solely in personal documents, not in official publications. It's hard to know exactly what to make of this evidence, particularly because we know very little about the people who wrote these documents. My personal guess is that the writers of these documents had immigrated to America from Britain toward the end of the colonial period, at which point the shift to non-roticity in Britain had become more and more widespread, thus allowing the writers of these documents to acquire the pronunciation at home and then bring it with them to their new home in America. At best, these arless spellings in colonial America are interesting, but surely not specifically instrumental in the spread of regional non-rhotic accents in a significant way. Anyway, vestiges of these regional 19th century accents still exist today, particularly in New England and the New York metropolitan area. This era of history explains why a multi-generational Bostonian in 2019 might say something like, Park your car over here. I find it fascinating that this trademark Bostonian accent, which I probably did no justice, isn't descended from a colonial accent that diverged from that of contemporary Britain, but rather a post-revolutionary attempt by which urban East Coast Americans try to sound like the aristocracy of the very country from which they just won independence. Today, these non-rhotic accents are somewhat stigmatized as provincial or uneducated, 
But from the time of their emergence in the late 18th century through the late 19th century, the opposite was true. These accents were classy and sophisticated. Although the prominence of non-rhotic East Coast accents have been on a steady decline over the last century or so, they certainly still exist, particularly among the working class and families who have lived in these regions for many generations. So the question that's probably on your mind is, if non-roticity was at one point considered prestigious, how did erotic accent become the basis for standard American? There are a handful of reasons for this. While late 18th century urban accents on the East Coast were becoming non-rhotic, the accent spoken on the newly conquered frontier of the Midwest was rhotic, and it remained so for three main reasons. One, the Midwest was so inland that the average settler there had virtually no contact with either their East Coast countrymen or seafaring British traders. Two, the majority of Midwesterners who had moved there from the East Coast had relocated before this new accent would have reached their ears. And three, large numbers of Scottish and Irish immigrants began settling in the Midwest, and the Scottish and Irish dialects of English were, and still are, highly rhotic. Also, after the American Civil War, many Midwestern cities experienced an industrial boom, creating new cultural, financial, and political epicenters. This attracted many war-spent Americans from the East Coast to move there, and they assimilated the rhotic accent. In fact, the standard American accent spoken today is largely based on the Midwestern variety developed during this time period. Another reason why roticity ultimately prevailed over non-roticity in the standard American accent is due to late 19th century suburbanization. Around this time, wealthy, predominantly white American urbanites began leaving cities and settling down in the suburbs. Generally speaking, non-rhotic accents had not reached the suburbs, and this gave a stigma to regional accents spoken in cities. Nobody likes stigmas, so the accents of these former urbanites became rhotic. These suburban accents converged around other phonological characteristics as well, but they're of no concern to our current episode. There's something that I've neglected to discuss thus far, and that is the role of African American English in this story. African American English, as the name implies, is the name for varieties of English spoken primarily by African Americans. Although there is no single dialect or accent that can be called the African American English, all of its varieties share some general characteristics, and one of those characteristics is non-roticity. Some commentators have speculated that the African American English non-rhotic accent was inherited from native African languages. Upon a visit to America in 1842, the British Charles Dickens writes, quote, all the women who have been bred in slave states speak more or less like Negroes from having been constantly in their childhood with black nurses. End quote. The implication of Dickens' remark is that the English accent of 19th century Southern white women had been influenced by the English accent native to African Americans. However, Africans who were brought to America as slaves spoke a variety of different languages. In fact, slaves who spoke the same native African languages were often kept apart so they couldn't communicate and organize plots against their slave owners. Given this mixed bag of languages, each with its own phonology or set of speech sounds, 
I don't find it fully convincing that the early forms of African-American English just so happened to converge around a non-rhotic accent. Another theory proposes that the transfer of roticity from African-American English speakers to white American English speakers actually has the facts reversed. This theory suggests that the directionality of rhotic influence was the other way around. As I already mentioned, many wealthy plantation owners sent their children to Britain for education, and when these children returned to the United States, they brought the non-rhotic British prestige accent with them. Eventually, this accent would spread throughout the entire South. The way African-American slaves learned to speak English was by imitating the sounds of their white masters. In The English Language of America, George Philip Crapp writes, quote, The Negroes omitted their R's because they heard no R's in the speech of their white superiors. Since they were entirely dependent upon hearing the sounds of speech, their sounds could not be affected by the visual impressions of spelling and for this reason their pronunciation of words with R final before consonants may seem broader, may seem fuller and franker than that of educated white speakers." End quote. So, according to this theory, Old Southern American English ultimately shaped the African American English accent that still persists to this day. Although this argument was made in 1923 and clearly uses some outdated racial terminology, I find it pretty convincing. The non-rhotic accent of Old Southern American English was spoken by black speakers and white speakers alike throughout the first half of the 20th century. Actually, if you listen to audio clips of President Jimmy Carter, born in Georgia in 1924, you can hear more than a few traces of this now-extinct white non-rhotic accent. However, during the second half of the 20th century, the white Southern American English accent changed. Why? Well, for two reasons. First, after World War II, Southern American cities experienced an industrial boom, similar to that of the Great Lakes region half a century earlier, and this caused Americans from other parts of the country to relocate to the South, and these Americans brought with them a rhotic accent. Instead of the Northerners adapting the accent of the South, it seems like Southerners began adapting the accent of the North. The second reason is likely a byproduct of the Civil Rights Movement. Given the racial tensions between blacks and whites in the South during the 1960s, some linguists have suggested that the white population began deliberately resisting all accent features associated with the black population and vice versa. If this is true, it would explain why the modern white Southern American accent suddenly became exaggeratedly rhotic at this point in history, and why the African American English accent continues to be non-rhotic to this day. Alright, that's it for this one. Don't forget, you can support the show at patreon.com slash wordsforgranted, and if that's not in your budget, you can always leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Those ratings and reviews really help out. I'm on Twitter and Facebook as Words for Granted, and you can email me directly at wordsforgranted at gmail.com. Alright, have a great day, and I'll talk to you soon. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. 
I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.